Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Bundy Murders Serial killer Theodore Robert Bundy was executed in the Florida electric chair on January 24, 1989. Over 30 years later, his infamy has not faded. Author Kevin M. Sullivan, arguably a Bundy expert, has written not just one, but six books covering every detail of this monster's short life and the numerous families and survivors he has affected to this day. Mr. Sullivan joined me for this episode of Murder Most Foul. I should start by saying that I never had any intention of writing about Ted Bundy. He just wasn't on my radar. I knew the case kind of in a general sense, like everybody does, but, but there was no desire there to, to actually write about him. But I had a friend who's now deceased. His name is James Massey. And well, Jim, he, he, uh, was, he worked for the probation and parole offices office here in Louisville. He had a lot of contacts in the world of crime and, uh, he was good friends with a, a man named Jerry Thompson, who was also now deceased, but he was the lead investigator in the Bundy case for Utah. Of course, Bundy began killing in Washington State, went to Utah. From there, he branched out to other states. But Jerry was the one that kind of brought him out of the shadows and um, introduced Bundy to the world for the killer of all these women that, that he was. And so Jim called me one day, and he had been friends at the time. This is back in 2005. He called me, and, and he asked uh, if if, uh, if I would like to have dinner with J Jerry and his wife, Jean, that they were going to come to Louisville in May of 2005. And I said, sure. I thought that would be a great uh, you know, meeting. I, I, I would love to meet the guy. Still, there's no desire to write about Bundy, but just knowing his connection to the case, I was wanting to talk with him. And... Um, so when they came in May, I remember Jim called me in the afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, to let me know where, where we would be eating dinner. And as I was about ready to say thanks and hang up, he said he brought the bag. And I said, what bag? He said the bag that Bundy carried. And then I remembered that when Bundy was arrested in Utah uh, in August of, 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 uh, of uh, 1975, uh, he lost his... What, what is known as his murder kit, which consists of a brown gym bag. Um, uh, it had a, a, a woolen ski mask in it, two right-handed gloves that were different, uh, electrical cord, which he would use that for choking. He had rope in there. Sometimes he would use rope for choking, but usually the, the uh, electrical cord. Sometimes he would use a woman's sock even, but... But it had all these implements. It had a, uh, it, it had an ice pick. It had a flashlight. It had glad trash bags. Uh, the box was ten, uh, but there were only seven bags left in this particular box when he was arrested. And it had just uh, uh, 
all these various items. And so um, when Jim said he brought the bag and I didn't know what it was, and, and, and then it hit me. It's Ted Bundy's murder kit. And I said, Jim, listen, can you do me a big favor and meet me a few minutes early? And I'd like to see this stuff in the parking lot. And so I met him. He comes out with this brown satchel. All this stuff is in there. Uh, Bundy had even taken a bed, bed, white bed sheet and, and cut it up into strips. And he still had the FBI markings on them where all this stuff was tested in, in, in you know, Washington. Anyway. So I got to see this stuff, very surreal. We had dinner, then we went back over to the Breckenridge Inn where uh, where the Thompsons had a room. While Jean went back to her room to watch TV, Jerry and Jim and myself sat out by the pool and I was able to interview uh, Jerry for a couple of hours. Well, I thought I would write an article for Snitch uh, uh, and uh, I used to, there, there was a, 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 news, a local print newspaper called Snitch published here in Louisville and also Lexington, Kentucky, but another four or five states at the time. And so I thought, well, I'll write an article about my meeting with Thompson uh, for, for Snitch, and that'll get that that Bundy bug out of me for writing it. It'll be this article. It'll be a one and done. Well, before Jerry left uh, for Utah on, on the day he left, he was here about four days. And he had turned the bag over to to Jim while he was here in Louisville do, doing sightseeing. And I called Jim one night and I said, would you mind if I brought uh, the, the Bundy bag to, to, to my house? He said, no, that, that would be fine. It was like two days later. So I was able to, to bring this kit into my home, lay it on the dining room table and, you know, just take two photographs as a, as a grouping. And then different photographs of, of, of the various items. So it was very, very interesting and surreal. Theodore Robert Bundy was regarded as handsome and charismatic, traits that he exploited to win the trust of victims and society. He would typically approach his victims in public spaces, feigning injury or disability or impersonating an authority figure before knocking them unconscious and taking them to secluded locations to rape and strangle them. He sometimes revisited his secondary crime scenes, grooming and performing sexual acts with the decomposing corpses until putrefaction and destruction by wild animals made any further interactions impossible. He decapitated at least 12 victims and kept some of the severed heads as mementos in his apartment. His own attorney, Polly Nelson, referred to him as the very definition of heartless evil. Ultimately, he confessed to 30 murders, but we're pretty sure he committed many more than that. Question, though, still remains, who was his first victim?
There is talk that Bundy might have been involved at the age of 14 with the killing of Anne-Marie Burr, who was an eight-year-old in uh, Tacoma. This child, a very bold abduction, the very thing that Bundy would have done. Somebody came in through an unlocked window in a very normal neighborhood of Tacoma. And this girl lived about a couple miles from Bundy, but Bundy had an uncle that lived in the area. And there's talk that he made. It's a crime that he always denied, except when he was with Ron Holmes, the Louisville cr uh, criminologist. I, I, I knew him and I interviewed him. He passed away a couple years ago. But, uh, but he opened up to him in the third person and incriminated himself with that murder. Well, so he may have done that when he was 14. We know that Bundy killed, although he killed college women, college-aged women, he also killed some young girls. His first and last victim were both 12 years old, and it may be he killed some young girls, even younger than that. And those are the kinds of murders that he didn't want to talk about. And it could be that the 1972 murder that he blurted out might have been of a young child. But what makes 1974 different is that something happened to him and he came to the realization that he was going to launch himself into full-time murder. And he began that <clears throat> in January of 1974. And when he did that, he never came back from it. And he knew he wasn't going to come back from it. And so all of his political aspirations and uh, attending law, even though he would stay in law school at, you know, uh, first in, in Washington State, then transferred to Utah. It really wasn't about getting his law degree. He knew that. It was about going to a new killing ground. So during that period, what was his murder cycle like? He was on basically a monthly cycle, maybe like a three-week cycle of where he was committing murders while in Washington State, which he was doing this from uh, January of 1974 through when he left Utah, uh, for Utah, which would be in September of 74. Now, he's, this is, I'm just going to tell you something because I haven't talked about this much, although I brought it up in um, my last book, The Enigma of Ted Bundy. When I was uh, speaking at um, Duquesne uh, University um, in uh, September of, 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 of uh, 2019 at a Syracuse, killer conference called hunting the hunters uh, uh for the first time publicly introduced a theory that i had uh, about bundy which i know has to be correct that that um that w where his hunting patterns changed but bundy began hunting women in the middle of the night and he always stayed under the cover from all that we know under the cover of darkness but on july 14 now, on July 14th, 1974, he had what is known as the double daylight attack of two women from Lake Sammamish State Park, uh, which is east of Seattle. He got Janice hot in the morning and took her to somewhere, kept her alive, uh, sexually assaulted her, but did not murder her, likely had her tied to a tree and gagged. They don't believe he was in any kind of cabin in the area, but that's likely what he did. Then he came back in the afternoon and he abducted Denise Nasland at about 420, 425 from the park 
took her back. She saw Janus, created a lot of fear, of course, and then he did whatever he wanted to do with her, and then he killed one in, in front of the other. Washington State, Bundy killed at least 11 women, but soon he decided it was time to get out of Dodge, and he moved his operation to Utah. When he got to Utah, in the first eight weeks that he was there, or the really, it's, uh, he, he, he had killed, even like maybe the first maybe seven weeks, he had killed four different women that we know of. And so his cycle of murder really ramped up in Utah, and I can tell you why that is, is because he was really enjoying murdering these women. And when it became, the investigation became too hot and heavy in Washington State, he knew he had to get out of there. So when he gets to Utah, it's a new killing ground. He's on all these co-eds, there's no manhunt for anybody in that area. And I say in the book, he's like a kid in a candy store. And so he starts killing there. And when he does, he does something different than he had even in Washington State. And he starts killing them faster. In Utah, among Bundy's victims is the daughter of the Midvale, Utah police chief. Also, while in Utah, he has a very costly failure with the attempted abduction of Carol Durange. Posing as a police officer, he convinces Carol to get into his vehicle and soon tries to handcuff her. She manages to escape and flag down a passing motorist who takes her to the real police station, where she is able to give a detailed description of her assailant. This costly failure will be instrumental in eventually catching Bundy. But unfortunately, not until several more women are murdered in Utah and nearby Colorado. Campbell was a nurse from Michigan. She was living with a man by the name of Dr. Raymond Godowski. They probably were going to end up being married. They traveled with Godowski's two children to a medical conference in Aspen. And uh, he cuts out from the medical conference early. And they go skiing and do stuff. And that night, uh, Godowski, Karen, the children, and a friend that came with them, who all, actually was too pot in at, in Snowmass Village, they just walked to it. It's, it's right there. Um, and they had dinner. And then they went back to the hotel room. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry, not the hotel room. They went back into the lodge. You go in there. They have a sunken area where there's a fireplace. And, and, and they went there. And um, Karen wanted to exchange a magazine that she had. The kids asked to go with her. They walk her to the elevator, and she sends them back to be with her dad. The elevator goes up to the second floor. It opens up into an outside area. The, um, the um, uh, hotel, you, your rooms are accessed from outside walkways. And what happened was Bundy... Um, was um, down in on the first floor using crutches, and he was trying to get um, 
people, this one woman, to help him, and she she wasn't budging. He needed like help to go to his car. What Bundy did, and it's in the in the second edition, when when Karen came out of the elevator on on the second floor, she saw this guy with crutches, and he was looked like he needed help. She's a nurse. She called down to him and asked if he needed help. Bundy thought, okay, I'll even though I want this other woman, I'll go with her. And so he probably came up to the second floor to join her, or she came down, and then they walked down the outside steps, took a left, and walked into uh, the large side parking lot. When he got there, he was on crutches. He was probably putting the crutches into the car, which is a, a standard way for Bundy that he captured a number of women like this. And as she was getting into the, putting those crutches in the car, it must have, as she was leaning out, uh, a lot of times he would place a crowbar beneath the back of the car, but he didn't do that that day. All he had in his hands were his snow boots, his ski boots. He took the ski boots and he hit her in the head as hard as he could and knocked her out. He then laid her in the VW and he would tell Mike Fisher later that he hit her one time with a crowbar after he got her in the car and that did a, a, a enough cranial damage to where she was out cold. And then he drove 2.8 miles, I think it was, out. He left the, the uh, Wildwood Inn and drove on Owl Creek Road, 2.8 miles. And then he said, I did my thing right in the car, which means he had sex with her and strength. But he, oddly enough, he didn't, he didn't kill her. And what he did was she had all this cranial damage. He used her sexually and he dumped her body just off the road, like six feet off the road and, um, and left her. And when they did the autopsy on Karen, they determined she died of um, cranial damage and exposure to the elements. August 16th, 1975, Bundy is arrested in Utah after a traffic stop. The police find his murder kit in the VW bug, but believe it is simply burglar's tools. He is released on his own recognizance. But he is arrested again in September when his VW bug, which he sold, is searched and DNA and hair strands link the car to three victims including Carol Durange. Ms. Durange subsequently picks Bundy out of a lineup, and he is charged, convicted, and sentenced to 15 years for the kidnapping of Durange. He is subsequently extradited to Aspen to stand trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. Mike was finally able to get this murder warrant for him, and and he, at the time that he got this murder warrant, Bundy had been convicted of the abduction of Carol Durange and sentenced to one to 15 years in the Utah State Prison, nicknamed Point of the Mountain Prison. Well, he had to get him out of that, drive him to Aspen, and he got put in the jail there. So it's interesting. Had he not gone to trial in Colorado, he would probably have done all 15 years or close to it in Utah 
And by that time, he would have obviously gone back to Washington State. They never had any evidence against him. And uh, so, you know, he was eventually transferred to Colorado um, and to stand trial for murder of, of Karen Campbell. Well, he gets out one day, he escapes, comes out of the courthouse window in Aspen. He's recaptured in, uh, in uh, about six or seven days. And he's, you know, Put, put back in the jail. Then he's transferred to another jail. Well, you'd think, you'd think they would have watched him, but, but they didn't. And Bundy was able to, there was a light fixture in this jail. It's a one-story jail in uh, Glenwood Springs. And there was a light fixture that needed to be welded. And Bundy was able to get that light fixture off and widen it a little bit. And listen to this, the prisoners in the jail would tell the authorities it happened by, with more than one prisoner. We could hear Bundy going up into the, like the rafters into the, like the duct work uh, above us. And he crawls around at night and we could hear him crawling around. And then he goes back down into his cell. Well, do you think they did anything about it? No, they did not. They did nothing about it. And here he's on trial for murder and he's suspected of many murders in the Northwest and in Utah. He had seven hundred dollars. This is back in nineteen. You know, this is this is this is some forty years ago. When if you did it in today's money, I mean, you're looking at maybe four or five times as much. But he had seven hundred dollars on him when he escaped. Uh, it, it was it, it, like the tail end of December of nineteen seventy-seven. I think he was out of jail. He escaped on, I think, uh, December 30th of 77. He had 700 bucks on him. He got a flight at Stapleton Airport. He flew into Chicago. And then he took a train to Ann Arbor. And nobody recognized him there. And he went and he stayed at the YMCA. He ended up going uh, a couple days later, stealing a car. And he drove it. And he came through Louisville, had breakfast at Uncle Hank's Pancake Cottage here in Louisville which I used to pass all the time and um, nobody recognized him. And so you, you remember these murders, uh, even though there it had been really hot news in the Pacific Northwest and in Utah, stuff would filter out, but not a lot. Now, for the first time I heard of Bundy was during his um, arrest and capture after he had escaped Colorado the first time. And I remember I was watching CBS news. And I think it was Ike Pappas, was doing a report of what this guy was suspected of. And then, of course, shortly after that, I heard of his second escape. So that was my first introduction to, to Ted Bundy. So people on this side of the country and in the South, uh, it, just, it just was kind of unknown, just little, little things. So when he gets to Florida, nobody, he can walk around, nobody knows who he is. He checks into the uh, 409 College Avenue in this great big house where people were staying, college students, grad students, people that weren't even going to school. And he used a fake name. And uh, so he was able to, so, and here's what happened. And when he got settled in Tallahassee, he didn't immediately start committing murder. But then that genie of murder over the next week or so started to rise. And that's when you know, he was going to get back in. So Bundy, Bundy basically drove himself out of every area he was ever in because of his desire to commit murder. And although he liked the, um, 
anonymity he had in Florida, in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, nice and sunny and college atmosphere, which he loved. And he enjoyed it. His real thing about life was murder. And so that was going to rise again. It was also undergoing a meltdown too. And one of the things that was so distinctive when that, that genie broke through, as, as it were, and he committed the rampage at Chi Omega. If you're a detective looking at the rampage of Chi Omega, where he killed two and, and severely beat two others, um, you go, well, that's not like Bundy. But see, that was all that pent-up rage. And he that bloodlust to kill, it was just, he had never done anything quite like that before. The Rampage at Chi Omega Sorority. Two killed, two other women badly beaten. It was my honor to recently interview Kathy Kleiner, one of the survivors of Ted Bundy. I remember it was late at night. Karen and I studied and then went to bed around 1230, went to sleep in our beds. And I remember hearing a noise, just enough to wake me up a little bit. It was, it was just um, enough to stir me. And what it was, was the door opening and swissing across the carpet. Next thing I heard, and it's black in there because it's night, and I'm just not even really opening my eyes, I hear a, a, a crash, a louder noise. And what that was, was someone had walked into our room, our dark room, and had stumbled over that little trunk that was between our beds. Now this woke me up enough to focus a little bit and to open my eyes. And as I'm looking, all I see is this black mass or this black figure of something. I couldn't tell what it was. And my eyes are focusing now a little better in the light. The next thing I remember seeing was this person standing there and raising his right arm up over his head and slamming it down on my face, <clears throat> excuse me, with such force that it broke my jaw, it shattered it, it ripped my cheek open. You could see the inside of my mouth. My tongue was almost bitten off. I got lacerations on my shoulder. And it didn't hurt at first. It felt more like a thud, like just a bang on my face. And I think at that point I uh, passed out. My roommate started stirring because she heard the noise louder. She woke up and seeing this person next to her put her hands up over her face to block the blow that she knew was gonna be coming at her. So he um, also hit her with, with what he had in his hand, which ended up being a piece of firewood. Now he had picked up the firewood. When he came in the back door of the sorority house, and that back door was right next to the rec room, he watched the sorority. He knew the comings and goings of the sorority. He also knew by watching the girls come home at night and entering that back door that it didn't lock. We had a combination on that lock and it had, uh, it broke and it had been broken for a couple of days. And he just turned the knob 
he picked up a piece of log firewood that we had right by that back door we used in our fireplace. He picked up that log and went up the back stairway, which is right next to the rec room, went up those stairs and turned down and went down that first hallway. And he walked down that hallway to the very end. He turned the corner. The first room he came to was Margaret Bowman's room. He attacked and killed Margaret. He went across the hall, attacked and killed Lisa Levy. After he beat me, I am laying there and I'm waking up and I'm cringing and I made myself into the smallest little ball I could and I'm holding my face and now it hurt. That dull blow now turned into needles and knives and my face was just hurting so bad and I'm cringed into my little ball waiting for the next blow and all of a sudden there was a light that shone up in our room. It was a bright light and as I'm cringing and looking, I can see this figure just kind of antsy moving around. The next thing, he ran out the door. And as I'm looking, that light was actually a car light driving into the back parking lot. And the light shone up into our bedroom because our curtains were open with plants hanging. So he ran out and I'm scared and I'm ready for him to come back and I'm screaming and I'm yelling for help and you know someone come and all I was doing was making gurgling sounds because my jaw was so badly shattered and my mouth was cut open and my tongue I just was gurgling and in my head I was screaming for help But Bundy was not done in Florida. No, he had one more murder to commit, although at the time he didn't know it was his last kill. Kimberly Leach, a 12-year-old high school student, was his last known victim. Uh, after he killed Kim Leach in Lake City, Florida, he knew it was time to basically leave. So he goes back and he drops the van off somewhere, wipes it down, whatever. And he goes back and he's, 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 he, he looked for a car to steal. And so he stole this, this, um, this orange VW and he made his way to Pensacola. But instead of leaving the state, he was caught one night, like driving with his lights off behind some buildings. And he was probably looking for something to steal, burglarize, might have been looking for a victim. It's not really known. One thing is, though, he dawdled. He didn't get out of Florida. And so this officer, David Lee, spotted him acting suspiciously with his lights off, hit the siren. Bundy tried to flee. He couldn't do it. Pulled over, got out, but got in a fight with Officer Lee. Tried to run away. Officer Lee finally apprehended him, and that's how he got him. And then he, he was in jail in Pensacola, but nobody knew who he was. And he had all these stolen credit cards on him too. And he identified himself as a 
as a guy named Kenneth Meisner, uh, uh, which was a track star. He had stolen this guy's ID from him. It was a track star in Tallahassee at, uh, at, at, at FSU. Uh, so anyway, uh, but then in, in a matter of days, he came out and told him who he was. Uh, in, uh, he traded with that information for uh, a chance to call Liz and call his family in Washington State. And uh, he called Liz and he said, boy, when this breaks, it's really going to be bad. But I'm calling you before it breaks. It probably won't break in the, in the media until tomorrow morning. And she said, you mean, you know, this has to do with the murders of, uh, of, of the college girls down? He said, I, he said don't make me say it. And um, but he had a couple conversations with her where he alluded to some things. He said he's sick. He knows that now he can't be on the streets, so on and so forth. And uh, but it was all happening in Pensacola, and that's where Don Patch, a lead investigator for the Kyomega murders in Florida, along with Steve Botherford of the Leon County Sheriff's Office, they came to Pensacola to interview Bundy. And then after a few days there, he was transferred to Tallahassee and placed in a really secure cell in the Leon County Jail. And then they would continue those uh, uh, conversations with Bundy there. And that's of course where. Um, he uh, he had, he Bundy was sitting in the back seat of David Lee's patrol car, and and Lee had to take a shot at him once because he when he was cuffing Bundy on the first fight that broke out, mm-hmm. Bundy Bundy uh, rolled over, kicked his legs out from under him, and and Lee had only gotten one cuff handcuff on him, and Bundy took off running. And as they ran through the streets of Pensacola, uh, Bundy kept looking back. And at one point, Lee had forgotten that he um, had put the cuff on and he saw something caught by the light that looked like metal. And he thought Bundy might have had a gun and he, and, he, and he fired at him but missed. Bundy fell as if he was hit. When he did that, here comes, gun in hand, uh, Officer Lee, and he's looking for where the bullet hit him, pulled takes his arm and rolls him over on his back. With that, Bundy kicks his feet out from him again. And then Bundy starts fighting with him and trying to get the gun. Well, Lee was not going to let that happen. So Lee carried a, a heavy-barreled 38 revolver. And with that, he took that 38 revolver and he hit him two or three times, but one time really good in the face, straight on at the with the round portion of the end of the barrel hit him right in the face, and with that, Bundy gave up, and he just fell back on the ground, and, because uh, Lee was, he was not going to let him get, get his, you know, service weapon, and um, so, as they were driving there, uh, he said to them, he said to Lee, he said, I just wish you would have killed me back there, and he, Bundy was very despondent, and he said, Lee said, I, I didn't want to have to kill you, he said, if I run, when I get out of the car, when we get to jail, will you shoot me there? In both of Bundy's murder trials in Florida, he represented himself. And as the saying goes, anyone who represents themselves has a fool for a client. The actual trial, but Bundy would swagger across the courtroom floor and he'd do this and he'd do that. So, um, so he defended himself quite a bit in the uh, Chi Omega. But he took uh, more of a reserved kind of 
thing uh, during the Kimberly trial. He did something that was so odd. In Florida, you could do this at the time. I don't think you can do this now. But you know, he had this woman with him, Carol Boone. And at the time, you could, in like in public, and he did this in court. He asked Carol if she would marry him. He was he was crossing like cross examining her on the stand. This was during court proceedings. This was in the penalty phase of the trial. Uh, the trial was over. He'd been convicted. This is the penalty phase, whether he's going to get life or or death. And he's got Carol on the stand, and and he asked her if he wanted to marry him, and he she said yes, I do. He said, well, I, I then marry you, and because it was witnessed by a person that they had there, it became legal, and he did that on the anniversary of the uh, Kim Leach murder, which was uh, you know February 9th, nineteen seventy eight, and I think this was February 9th, nineteen eighty one. So. Uh, so just three years later, or maybe two years later, maybe it was 1980, I had to check my... That stunt notwithstanding, Bundy was convicted and sentenced to death by electric chair, rejecting an offer from the prosecution of life without parole. While in prison, awaiting execution, Bundy fathered a child with his courtroom bride. Uh, the uh, prison in Florida didn't have... Uh, conjugal rights what he did he he paid off some guards and there were uh, apparently there were uh where you could use the the, the machines that like snack machines there was an area like a little corner area and bundy uh had sex with carol there and it, it produced a child and uh, that child's name was was uh is is rosa and um once this happened, and of course, it, I mean, that's his kid. There were, there's there's a, been a number of photographs taken of Bundy and Carol and, and Rosa at the prison. Up to this point, we have avoided the $64,000 question. Why? Bundy underwent multiple psychiatric examinations. The experts' conclusions varied. But what did Bundy himself feel the reason for his depraved behavior was? And he just asked Bundy, why, why would you do these things? And Bundy just looked at him and he said, well, it was just the madness. It's just just, just the madness. But he, he told Hagmar one day, he said, I don't understand why people can't just understand that I just enjoyed killing people. It was as simple as that. He really enjoyed it. There's just no compunction against doing it. He wanted to do what he enjoyed. Bundy denied guilt for the murders in Florida right up till the end. In fact, even as the judge was sentencing him, he accepted no responsibility in his statement to the court. A judge in Miami today followed the jury's recommendation and sentenced Theodore Bundy to die in the electric chair for the murder of two co-eds. Bundy is the 136th person under death sentence in Florida. Ed Rabel reports. 
Before pronouncing the sentence, Judge Edward Cowart let Bundy make a statement. I'm not asking for mercy. For I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act. But I will not share the burden for the guilt. While in prison, awaiting execution, Bundy gave numerous interviews. He ultimately admitted to his crimes. In an interview with James Dobson on the eve of his execution, he gave this well-thought-out reason why he had become a killer of women. I've lived in prison for a long time now. And I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography without question, without exception. And what scares and appalls me, Dr. Dobson, is what I see what's on cable TV. <laughs> Some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies uh, that come into homes today was stuff that they, that they wouldn't show in X-rated adult theaters 30 years ago. This stuff... The slasher movies that you're talking about. That stuff is, I'm telling you, from personal experience, the most, that is graphic violence on screen particularly as it gets into the home yeah. to children who may be unattended or, or unaware that they may be a Ted Bundy who has that, that vulnerability to that, that predisposition to be influenced by that kind of behavior, by that kind of, of, of movie, that kind of violence. Bundy's interview with Dr. Dobson was lengthy. I invite my listeners to watch it on YouTube to get the full effect of a conversation with a serial killer. In my opinion, a monster. Let me know your take on his crocodile tears over the body of his final victim, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, and his self-serving smirks tossed in the direction of the earnest Dr. Dobson. One of the, the final murders that you committed, of course, uh, was apparently little Kimberly Leach, 12 years of age. Uh, I think the, the public outcry is greater there because an innocent child was taken from a, from a playground. What did you feel after that? What was there? Were there the normal emotions three days later? Where were you, Ted? I... I can't really talk about that right now. That's weird. That's too painful. I would like to uh, like to be able to convey to you what that that uh, that experience is like, but I can't. That I won't okay. be able to talk about that. Okay. I can't begin to understand. Well, I can try, but I, I'm aware that I can't begin to understand the pain that the parents of these, of these children that I have, and these young women that I have harmed feel. And I can't restore really much to them 
if anything. I won't pretend to, and I don't even expect them to forgive me, and I'm not asking for it. That, that kind of forgiveness is of God, and if they have it, they have it. If they don't, well, maybe they'll find it someday. Do you deserve the punishment the state has inflicted upon you? That's a very good question. And I'll answer very, very honestly. I, I don't want to die. I'm not going to kid you. I'll kid, kid you not. Um, I deserve certainly the, the most extreme punishment society has. And I deserve, I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. That's for sure. Um, I think what I, what I hope will come of our discussion is I think society deserves to be protected from itself because, because of we, as, as we've been talking, there are, there are forces that loose in, in, in this country, particularly, again, uh, this kind of violent pornography, uh, where, on the one hand, well-meaning, decent people will condemn behavior of a Ted Bundy while they're walking past a a, a magazine rack full of the very kinds of things that send young kids down the road to be Ted Bundy's. That's the irony. We're talking here not just about more. We're talking. I'm, what I'm talking about is going beyond retribution, which is what people want with me. Going beyond retribution and punishment, because there is no way in the world that killing me is going to restore. Uh, those beautiful children to their parents and, and, and correct and, and, and soothe the pain. But I'll tell you, there are lots of other kids playing in streets around this country today who are going to be dead tomorrow and the next day and the next day and next month because other young people are reading the kinds of things and seeing the kinds of things that are available in the media today. thank my guest, Kevin M. Sullivan, for appearing on today's podcast. His books can be purchased online or through your local bookstore. More info on Mr. Sullivan can be obtained on the Wild Blue Press website. I also want to offer a special thank you to Kathy Kleiner for her graciousness talking about her ordeal at the hands of Ted Bundy and her recovery. Her full interview is entitled Monster in My Bedroom and can be downloaded the same way you downloaded this segment. I'd also like to offer a tip of the hat to investigators Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington State, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, and the men and women of law enforcement who work tirelessly to end the reign of terror of Ted Bundy. And lastly, I wish to thank my listeners for their continued support. Please tell your friends and visit my website www.murdermostfoul all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. 
and leave a comment via my email link found there. Until next time, stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.